0: Welcome to the YMB Raleigh Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Woodcox, and today I'm here with a very special guest, Travis Bailey, who knows a lot about what's going on in the city of Raleigh, particularly in regards to ADUs, granny flats, backyard cottages, and what's going on with the city. This week on that topic, here's our conversation. All right, I'm here with Travis Bailey. He is a longtime Raleigh resident, a social media expert, and an advocate for open government, but not just an advocate, a practicer and a doer of open government. If you've seen a live stream of a Raleigh City meeting, it's a lot, probably largely because of Travis Travis's advocacy in that area and uh, his work to do that. Travis, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. Travis, I know you've been a a long-time Raleigh resident, and you've gotten involved in city issues recently. Just tell me a little bit about um, how long you've lived in Raleigh, and what got you interested in in what's going on with Raleigh city government.
1: Sure. So, I was born and raised here. Um, I went to UNC Charlotte and got my degree, but I was always coming back to Raleigh, and then in 2012, um, I took a job in Austin, Texas, moved out there with my then-girlfriend, now wife, and... It didn't take long before I was really missing Raleigh. I mean, it's, it's where my family and friends are, yeah, but there's just so many things about Raleigh I missed. I missed the, um, the feeling of kind of a small town, but having a lot of the amenities of your bigger, larger cities. Um, and it's where I wanted to put roots down and start a family. So uh, one of the things when my wife and I were talking about where we were gonna move after Austin, was I wanted to move back to Raleigh, and so the agreement was, okay, well, if we're going to move back to Raleigh, you need to get involved in your local community and not be like a home buddy, because, I mean, I, I used to just, I can sit back, play video games, shut myself up in my house all day long, but she wanted me to get out and do stuff, which was a good idea, um, and when I moved back to Raleigh, I saw a Reddit post about Raleigh Neighborhood College. And I went and got into that program, participated in it. It's free through the city. they have it twice a year. It's a great program. Um, and that's what got me involved in local city government. And that was, I graduated from that in May 2017.
0: That's great. Not too long. So since you've experienced Austin. Austin's kind of a, a city that may be a few years ahead of Raleigh as far as growth and development and things that are happening there. What are some things that Austin got right that you think and some things that Austin got wrong? Um, I think Austin definitely got their
1: culture right. There's a lot of things to see and do there. There's a lot of exciting and new development that seemed to be happening all the time in that city. Uh, and of Texas. Um, I've never seen another city that is just so open and welcoming to college students than Austin, Texas is. So I think those are definitely things they got right. They've got some transit things right, like they put in a light rail. Um, Even though it's just like one line, it it helped me and a few other people, but I know it definitely uh, wasn't the best uh, public transit project ever done. In terms of what they got wrong, they definitely did not plan for their growth. I mean, it's um, the roads going around there. They've got several main roads, 183, US-1, Mopac, I-35. They're all elevated highways. And traffic was horrible. But on top of traffic being horrible, most of the times if you live near one of those roads, there's an access road on either side, and you'd have to make a U-turn. Like if I wanted to go to a wendy's right across the street from me i'd have to drive a block or two down make a u-turn and come all the way back so traffic transit stuff like that they got totally wrong um density i think is some of the same issues we have here where there's some areas that are high density but then there's all these pockets of single family homes that have made housing so expensive there for some people uh so Really, there's a lot of the same problems that we've got here in Raleigh. It's just Austin is more of a kind of hip and tech town, so to speak, in my opinion, than Raleigh is right now.
0: Yeah, well, they seem to embrace that image. I mean, you know, they got South by Southwest. They've got all kinds of cultural events that, that kind of brand their city. And it's just a question of what what events will Raleigh use to brand itself over the next few years. So I know that you're, you've you got your own website, Raleighite.com. Um, and that one project that you've worked on is kind of grading city councilors on their social media presence their interaction and just how what kind of online presence they're maintaining uh, what has that taught you about how Raleigh city government is functioning how it's how city councilors are interacting with citizens and voters and uh, how do you feel that we're doing overall
1: well first thing is it's taught me keeping an active blog is very very difficult so, Big props to you, Brent, because I don't know how you keep posting so often to your blog because I seem to just – I'll go on spurts of one or two stories, and then I'm just gone for several weeks. But
0: Uh, Don't sleep. That's that's, that's the idea. I can imagine. imagine. Um, But honestly, I think I've seen that there's already a
1: number of people out there blogging and tweeting and posting on Facebook and stuff about – local government. So the first thing I wanted to do was find a niche. Um, And my niche was I wanted to try and break down a lot of really complex or polarized issues and make them easier for people to understand. So the ADU issue is definitely one of those highly polarized um, and to some degree kind of sensationalized issues where we have two. Very different sides, and I don't want to get into too many details because I know we're going to discuss that later. But it's more about I want to try and get people who have never been plugged into city government because I hadn't touched city government up until May 2017. I the only person I knew was the mayor's name, that's it. I had no idea who was on city council or what they did. And with that mindset, I've been trying to kind of help people who were like me, prior to me finding out about this, what is city council, what do they do? What are the things that are going on right now in city council that you should know about and how do you have input into that process and why should you care? Which I think is the most important thing because there's just so much apathy in every city, including our own on local city government. Uh, And it's kind of on us, the people who are plugged in and really doing our best for advocacy and learning how to get things done to help bring more people into the fold, so that's been my focus, and just trying to get it easy to understand for people.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I saw this conversation today um, that was taking place online between Dak Shepard and John Favreau of the Pod Save America podcast, and Dak Shepard had made this comment. I don't I don't know exactly where it happened, but that people talk about politics 24-7. I mean, every single day you see people talking about politics, probably more so than ever in 2018. And yet, it's really just you vote that one time. The, the vast majority of people vote once every four years, maybe once every two years, and then the truly committed might vote in a primary. But when you start talking about local government, I mean, you don't have a lot of people that are, that are absolutely involved, that are engaged with it, know what's going on, follow it day to day. But then, you know, John Favreau and, and some others, I think, made the point that, yeah, but local government is the thing that you can get involved in that has the most impact on your life, that it really is a day-to-day experience because these folks meet constantly. They have a lot of committee meetings, they have a lot of committees, and and the things that they do, you'll see them show up in your community sooner rather than later. Whereas something at the state level or the federal level it may or may not impact you. It may be years in the making before something comes to fruition. But city government can can change things much more quickly. And and to me, that's a good thing about city government. You want local government to be close to the people, and you want it to be more reactive than the big bureaucracy that you see at state and federal level.
1: Yeah, and it's, to your point, like the apathy itself, It if you get involved, you will have a much larger impact. Then, like, let's see. And I'm not saying it's not important to vote in like the presidential election, but if you go and vote, vote at like the Raleigh City Council election, for example, which is in October every two years, there's those people. Some of those city councilors they win with like five thousand votes or six thousand votes, because that's all the people who show up in their district to vote in that election. So your vote counts a whole lot more than say a federal election where like 20% of Wake County turns up to go and cast a ballot. It's literally less than 5% of our population. So it's a tremendous opportunity for people to have an impact if they just pay a little bit of attention even.
0: Well, speaking of engagement, I know one thing that you've really championed is live streaming and the ability of people to uh, get access to meetings they may not be able to show up to in person or Aren't able to be there that night, but they can watch it back and they can figure out what either a CAC is doing or a local committee is doing. Um, and uh, I know that you've streamed a lot of that on your Facebook page at Raleighite. Do you think we're making progress? Do you think more people are getting involved because of that? Is is that going to is that is that a potential that we have to uh, change who pays attention to local government in Raleigh?
1: I think so. I mean, it's. Honestly, when I started advocating for live streaming, um, that came from the Raleigh Neighborhood College. Like one of the assignments was you had to go to two committee meetings or city council meetings, and you could do one of them by watching the city's live feed through the Raleigh Television Network or RTN. And they're great folks over there at RTN. They do hard, they work really, really hard with a very limited budget. Um, So, what I'm about to say, I don't want to Mitigate their efforts at all, but because of their limited budget and the limited amount of people that they have working on that uh, The experience is kind of poor If you're trying to go on the city's website find a video and watch it or watch it live so In turn a lot of people don't actually watch it Um, It's hard to find not a lot of people utilize the service, so what I started doing was not only going around with my own camera and live streaming some CAC meetings, but also just taking the the stream feed from RTN, like, for example, city council meeting, and pushing that through Facebook. And I've seen the first time I did that, we had about 156, almost exactly, I want to say 156 people watching that live stream. Uh, on a city council meeting and it wasn't like the things being discussed it wasn't anything super exciting or controversial it was just a regular city council meeting and I was trying to get them hey you've got the city of Raleigh Facebook page why don't you simulcast it to that Facebook page just like I'm doing right now it just takes a cheap laptop that's it Um, and immediately met resistance on that Uh, but Tapping into social media is definitely a way that the city could engage more people. The city of Raleigh's Facebook page has got tens of thousands of people following it. You, you post stuff like the sunflowers are over in Dick's Park, you've literally got an armada of cars flooding that park because <laughs> of the sunflowers, because they were notified. Um, but I just don't see a push for that being used by local government to also get people involved in local government, it's kind of like C-SPAN. You can turn on C-SPAN. You can watch government meetings 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but not a lot of people utilize it. You push some of that stuff over to social media, more people might tune in.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, you know, you're the expert, but it seems to me that you see a lot of websites today that are struggling that you, that used to be able to get tons of traffic to them, whether it's The Onion or Funny or Die or something like that. You've seen tons of websites either crater or not be able to find a, a, an online audience anymore. And they've had to basically go to social um, and they had to build a, a following there and they had to advertise through on social media channels, but particularly through Facebook in, in particular, it seems like if you want to go find people, you got to go find them in the networks that they're already in. And so if, if Raleigh local government wants to be an open government that's engaging and uh, and everyone has the opportunity to, to be involved then it seems like social media is pretty much an integral part of that process at this point, isn't it?
1: So I, for example, didn't vote for the guy, but our current president, President Trump, I think has kind of really jump-started. Social media was already full of politics, but ever since the 2016 election, it's almost tripled the amount of political discussions and information being shared over that around politics. But I've seen it's also created a lot more of a polarized, antagonistic environment in a lot of ways. So I think one of the problems that we're seeing right now, and one of the reasons why I've been doing that social media report card piece, is if you're a local elected city councilor, it can be a bit intimidating for you to go out there and start engaging and chatting with people on social media. Because it's just like um, the problem that every business faces. If you want to get a review, people are way more apt to leave a negative review for a bad experience than they are to leave a positive review for a good experience. And likewise, if you're a politician, people are much more apt to come to your page and complain about a choice you made or a vote you made than they are to come and compliment you about the way you're doing your job. And when you might have won by literally five or 6,000 votes and you realize what you're putting out there is a written record that thousands of people can see instantly, it can be a bit intimidating to do that. Um, But the thing is, if you start having those politicians start engaging on social media and people realize it's a direct outlet to them to reach out to them, it can be an extremely powerful tool to get people engaged.
0: Well, and it's also kind of the value of local government is you're going to see that person at the barbershop. You're going to see them in the church pew. You're going to see them at the restaurant you go to on a Friday night. Like that, They're not so far away from you as a national politician is, so you would hope that that would translate to social media as well, that they'd be a little bit more accessible. But, I mean, I, I do agree with you that it, it's— it's hard to be the first one out there, and, and look, we've all made mistakes on social media. We all have, and it's, there is this kind of thought in politics that you'll never mess up, you'll never make a mistake, and if you do, you'll have to pay a high political price for it, and maybe we should just be a little bit more forgiving of our <laughs> politicians when they, when, you know, I've sent 30,000 tweets in my life, they're not all gold, you know, not all of them were great. I'd probably like to have a few of them back, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we've, we've all been in that situation. But at the same time, it's if you're engaging with somebody like in the church pew or the barbershop, the only people that get to benefit from that conversation are the ones that are physically there. Um, so in terms of not only just like transparency, but the fact of as you as a local politician – If you picked up the phone and gave a phone call to every single one of your constituents, even at the city councilor district level, you would not be able to do that by the time you were up for re-election if you had a five-minute phone call with every one of your constituents. It's just not possible. But you go online and you start engaging with people. People have similar questions. Like if I wanted to ask them, hey, uh, why why are the garbage bins green? If you called and told me, no one else gets to know that answer, but if we go online and you respond to my comment, oh, they're green because that's just like city code and that's the way it was mandated, yada, yada, yada. I don't know the real reason. It's just an example. Everybody that sees that gets the benefit from that information, so it helps disseminate it to your entire population.
0: That's a good point. So... Turning to some information that might be helpful to folks that are going to listen to this podcast tomorrow at four o'clock, there's going to be a meeting of the Raleigh's growth and natural resources committee, which is a a committee of city councilors, And they're looking into in particular accessory dwelling units and what, how, what ordinance, what kind of laws, what kind of rules and regulations we should put in place there. Uh, Travis, I know you've been following this issue pretty closely, Why don't you catch us up on where we've been over the last several months um, as far as the process goes? So I'd like to say there's been a lot of progress on this, but to be honest,
1: uh, ADUs have been debated for several years now. And uh, this kicked off, I believe it was the May GNR, or Growth and Natural Resources meeting, where... We all went in, and uh, Councillor Kay Crowder, who was the chair of that particular committee, uh, just kind of announced to everybody that they were going to have a listening session. So she gave uh, both sides the opportunity to come down and speak. Uh, we had so many people for the pro-ADU side um, that we ran out of time. Like we, they had to stop us. I think we each got like 30 minutes apiece. Um, and then the other side that spoke, they weren't necessarily against ADUs, but they were advocating more for this overlay option, which the overlay is, it's a restriction that allows you as a neighborhood, you have to go around and you have to find a bunch of neighbors within a two or three acre area which that area size they still haven't agreed on how large it would need to be and you have to go and get their buy-in then you would have to take that to city council and the planning department of the city and file for basically a rezoning to get the overlay in place Um, you'd have to have meetings with your neighbors you'd have to have people signing petitions you'd have to have um, meetings with the city and the planning department, and all these things. Uh, and it would take a bit of time to get put in place. And it wouldn't be until you got that overlay in place that you could even start the process of building an ADU. Uh, so, your normal stuff you got to go hire an architect, you got to get your permits, a builder, all that stuff. Um, from my standpoint, the overlay option is just going to really kill the idea of there being adus in raleigh there might be a few of them granted but the process is just going to be insanely difficult the only thing that's really become apparent is moving forward with adus by right so being able to build one in your yard without the overlay is not going to happen that's literally the only thing that i think that committee has decided is not going to happen um other than that, the past couple GNR meetings have just been them debating on what would that process look like to establish the overlay? Would it be a petition process? Would it be a rezoning process? Uh, it's even been brought up if people would need to go before the, um, the BOA for a variance.
0: still up in the air. Yeah, it's important to remember that this this overlay district is in addition to regulations that otherwise apply to a second dwelling unit being built on your property. So the setbacks, the amount of space, the amount of floor space you're allowed, the uh, what kind of lighting is required, what parking requirements are required, all of these different things that would govern this second dwelling unit on, on one piece of property That's that's not even the the start of the process. First, you've got to go through this entire overlay process where you go to, like you said, acres around that surround your your um, your house that make up your neighborhood, presumably. And then you have to get a certain percentage of ballots returned from all of your neighbors. And if at least half your neighbors say they prefer you not build this in in your backyard, then you can't. And no one no one else around you can either. So it seems like it's a really big hurdle to cross, particularly when even building one of these things, it's not exactly a cheap idea in the first place. I mean, if you're going to build something nice that actually can keep out the weather and that someone could actually live in, I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, if not $100,000 to build something like that, right?
1: Oh, easily. And I mean, it's you're literally building a miniature house. So plumbing, electrical, all that stuff comes into play. It's very expensive. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is there are houses in our city, like it used to be legal to build these things in Raleigh. Um, And there are a handful of properties in our city where they are grandfathered in and they still exist. So... It's not like these are anything new. It's not something drastically, radically different that we're introducing to the city of Raleigh. It's something we're actually bringing back that have been around for... Honestly, I think they were building ADUs since the city was actually founded up until they were banned sometime in the 70s. I'm not sure of the exact date of when they were banned, but it was, it was recent enough to where there's still a lot in existence.
0: Yeah, and it seems it's, you know... There's a philosophical question here about who gets to decide who gets to live where in the city. Is it the people that already live there? Do they get to decide who gets to move into their neighborhood? Is there a broader perspective that should be brought to the table that serves the needs of the entire city, including people who may not have moved here yet, who may be on their way here or will move here? We know we're on on a growth trajectory in Raleigh. People are going to need housing. We have to build housing at the same rate that people are arriving if we do not do that then we are going to have a deficit which will drive up prices that's simple supply and demand and that that's going to cause real problems real real social problems in Raleigh if if we don't figure out how to house people that are moving here particularly if they're moving here for a job they're looking here moving here for opportunity and as you said there are neighborhoods in Raleigh you know contrary to some some of the harsher rhetoric on this issue that would contend that it may destroy your neighborhood or fundamentally change the character of your neighborhood. I mean, some of the nicest, oldest neighborhoods in the city, places like Cameron Park and University Park, are places where they have ADUs. And those are some of the most desirable places to live in, in Raleigh, and that's shown by the prices that you pay to live there. But it just seems like... it. You can look to other cities like Durham and Asheville, where ADUs are allowed by right, from my understanding, and you can look at neighborhoods that are right here in Raleigh that have ADUs, and it seems like some of the concerns that have been raised by the opposition, they just haven't come to fruition.
1: Uh, Yeah, and speaking of which, if they pass the regulations with the overlay requirement, which everything points to them doing that, we will be the most restrictive city, not only in North Carolina, but from a talk that we had with the – he's an architect, but he literally drew up the proposed ADU policy when they were modifying the UDO because he used to work for the city of Raleigh. He came and gave a talk um, to our group, Raleigh for All. He said we would literally be the only city in the entire country with the overlay requirement to his knowledge.
0: I mean, it's just, in in some ways, it's a fundamentally just backwards thing to let people decide who gets to live in their neighborhoods. And unfortunately, that is the kind of thing that we've used zoning to do in the past. And we've done it in the South in particular, in in urban areas in particular, and it's always harmed vulnerable people the most. Um, And it just seems like I'm not saying that's what's behind people that are against ADUs. I think that folks are, are scared. They're scared that their neighborhoods are going to change. They're scared that um, their property values are going to are going to decrease. They're they're scared that there's going to be parking issues. that's going to be an inconvenience to them, um, that there's going to be new people in their neighborhood that they don't know. And, I, you know, I don't want to just push those aside. I don't want to dismiss those altogether because people have the right to feel how they feel. But you just have to also consider – is that fear worth the problems that are associated with not building enough housing places that have struggled with this? I mean, Seattle has struggled with it. San Francisco has struggled with it. Portland is a really good example of a place that really got very popular, very quickly, did not build enough housing, struggled mightily, then tried, then started to loosen their rules on things like ADUs. um, And that, that actually did help solve some of their problems. And so, You know, one thing that I always try to tell people is, you know, Raleigh's a lot different than it was 10 years ago. And personally, I think that's a good thing. I think Raleigh's a lot better place than it was 10 years ago. That's when I first got here. 10 years from now, Raleigh will be different again. It will change. I promise you that. Now, the question is, will it change for the better or will it change for the worse? And will keeping things like ADUs, which are pretty low impact density improvements, from coming into our neighborhoods, how does that make them better and not make them worse? Yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, it's at no cost to the city right. for
1: addressing affordable housing. So, And you're 100% right. I don't think anybody who's opposing ADUs outright is trying to do this out of any sort of racism or trying to keep people out or um, excluding people from their neighborhoods. It's definitely, they've, they've raised some concerns the, the issue I see, though, like you mentioned Portland. Um, I saw data online when they were talking about Portland when they made it available for everyone to build ADUs by right. Less than 2% of eligible lots actually put an ADU on the lot because they had the same thing. Your setback restrictions, the amount of impervious land you were able to have on your lot, all those restrictions that you would typically see for a normal – single-family home being built. And less than 2% of the lots did that. So when you start hearing elected officials saying that ADUs are going to double the density of the city, so to speak, to me that is really what's kind of driving a lot of these fears that are unfounded, is it's, it's not based on the facts of the data that we've seen anywhere else in the entire world that allows these structures to be built. Uh, we're not seeing the effects that a lot of people are concerned about.
0: Right, and and that's what gets me about kind of this whole approach because, you know, we can debate regulations, we can debate setbacks, parking requirements, lighting, whatever. I mean, there are a million different things that they've talked about in, in these committee meetings about regulations they want to put on these. Now, I may favor fewer regulations than other folks may favor, but at the end of the day, if you're able to build it under some scheme, some rules, if there are some rules in place that will allow you to build these things, then at least opens up the opportunity for it to to serve as a part of an overall strategy to increase affordable housing in the city. But if we go with the overlay district, we're going to make it, this process, so draconian that everyone's going to be intimidated. No one's wanna, gonna, going to want to go through it. And we're essentially just giving people vetoes over building housing. And there just has to be a broader perspective than just simply 10 acres of folks deciding they don't want any more density in their area. We've got to find places in this city where we can increase density. I'm not, even, I'm not saying double it. I'm just saying incrementally increase density because it's clear that in too many areas of our city, we're not using land in the most productive way that we could to house people and to serve affordability.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it goes back to that supply and demand curve, right? We can't, we have very limited tools in Raleigh to increase the amount of land because we're pretty much landlocked between the the water um, reservoir restrictions that we've got up towards the north with Falls Lake. We've got Cary and Durham to the west. We've got um, other smaller cities to the east I mean we're we're limited in the amount of land that we have and we're very fortunate that the demand for our city is very high people want to move here people love this city and it's a great place to live I'm a little biased of course but I don't <laughs> know anywhere else I want to live but I mean I'm sure you're in the same issue like it's great to see our property values go up but Not only is that making it harder for people to find houses, but when it comes time for our tax evaluation to happen, that's going to really, really hurt.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, you know, you raised the point earlier. This is one way that uh, you can do it without any cost to taxpayers. I mean, building affordable housing, subsidizing affordable housing is necessary. It's something that we cannot fail to do in this city. If we care about homelessness, we want to fight homelessness, we want to provide opportunity, get people on the bottom rung of the economic ladder and help them to, to make progress. But it's expensive to build housing for people. And if people are going to build housing and rent it out or use it for a, a aging parent that may be moving back with them or, or a student coming back from college that might live in it for a while, people that are in transitional periods in their lives who need just kind of something to get them on the bridge from one house to another. I mean, that's that's invaluable, and we just don't have enough of those properties in our city right now. And we're we're gonna the needs not gonna go away, regardless of what the rules become.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, it's our city's a great place, and people want to move here. So it's it's a double-edged sword, though, especially when we're in a situation where we're just we're not utilizing the land as efficiently as possible, and it's something like EDUs. From all the tools that are in the toolbox that are being looked at for affordable housing, Mm -hmm. ADUs are the lowest impact, least cost to city government, because it's virtually zero. Um, And we're still seeing it as so controversial. If this issue, if ADUs are so controversial, I don't even know how we'll start looking at using the other tools for addressing affordable housing, because we can't expect the city government to just build subsidized housing to address the issue we can't build our way out of it from the government um so i don't know
0: that, that's that's an excellent point well travis I, thank you for coming on it's been a good conversation i'm definitely gonna have to go, have you back i know you'll be following this issue very closely as will i and hopefully a lot of folks that, that will listen to this will as well
1: oh, thanks again for having me it was great and it's an honor to be on the inaugural podcast <laughs>
0: thanks How going?